page 1089. I'm going to read for you John chapter 20 and the first 18 verses. We've been working our way through John's gospel over the last few uh, months and uh, having got to Easter, we're now going to um, just think for a few weeks about some of the resurrection appearances of Jesus. Jesus, uh, uh, who was arrested and tortured and killed in what we celebrate as Good Friday, and then on Easter Sunday, uh, uh, we celebrate his resurrection. And uh, this is what happened uh, according to John on that first day of the week. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb. We don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb, crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked a woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned round and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realise that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where that you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell him, I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Let me pray for us as we come to God's word together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of your word. Thank you for John's words uh, written down. And thank you for the chance, just for a few minutes, to spend some time with them. And we pray that you would speak to our hearts and minds, that we would uh, be encouraged and given more certainty in our faith and our walk with you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And my family will tell you that I have a tremendously bad memory. Um, There are entire bits of my life I seem to have no recollection of at all. They do sort of swim vaguely into view when I'm reminded of them. Apparently, for example, my very best friend Tim, who I'm still friends with uh, more than 40 years later, used to come and spend every Friday night staying over with us for about five years. And I have no recollection of this at all. And my children have now got to the point where they ask my wife rather than me for any recollection of my dim and distant past. But there is one particular um, conversation I remember having in my sixth form days. I think it was in the upper sixth. And it was with a friend of mine called Simon. Simon was quite unusual in my school uh, in that he was, and bear in mind this is now more than 30 years ago, um, he was somebody who was uh, white and western in his um, upbringing and for some reason, in his sort of mid to late teens, had converted to a particular sect 
of Islam um, to the Ahmadi sect that's sadly been in the news for all the, the, the wrong reasons over the last few days. Uh, he's a lovely chap, and he and I got on very well. And because I was quite well known for being a Christian, and he'd become quite well known for being a Muslim, we sort of had a bit of a bond. We were both um, slightly stuck out like a sore thumb, and we got to know each other and chatted. And this particular conversation um, went a bit like this. He'd been plugging me for why was I a Christian, and why did I go to church? And so uh, I was saying to Simon, well, why do you believe the Quran? And he said, well, because it's true. Uh, I said, well, you know, but why do you believe it's true? And he said, well, because the Prophet Muhammad says it's true. And I said, well, okay. I really remember this very distinct. I remember where we were standing. And I kept saying, well, so, but why do you believe that? Well, because it's true. Why do you believe it's true? Well, because the Prophet Muhammad says it's true. Well, why do you believe that? Because it's true. We, went back, didn't, we didn't get very far in the conversation. And there were two things that happened to me um, off the back of that. One was simply this sense of not making a connection that it bothered me that I wanted to know why somebody was believing something. I wanted to understand what was behind it. But the other thing that it made me do is to think about what I believed. So I was thoroughly brought up Christian. I don't know how to describe it better than that. My dad was a missionary. My mum got ordained. They're both preachers. If ever there were a conveyor belt labelled Christian, I was born onto it. I was baptised um, uh, slightly, maybe not that much younger than Figo. I screamed the place down from the moment I was handed to the vicar um, until well after I was handed back. Um, and I never remember a day in my life when I haven't been aware of a belief in God and of belonging to God's people. And, and so I was on this conveyor belt. And it, it suddenly hit me in my late teens that it was a bit like a conveyor belt. And that if I wasn't very careful, I was simply just going to poodle along on this conveyor belt all my life. And the question was, why? Why did I believe what I believed? And it became acutely important to me uh, in about my second or third year at university. I did a four-year engineering degree. And, of course, towards the end, the second half of that, you start to think, I need a job. Sort of dawns on you. Um, And I had the potential of an engineering job, but I'd also started to think about getting ordained. And suddenly this question of why did I believe what I believe had an impact far deeper than simply a philosophical question. I confess that partly it had a a number attached to it, i.e. the difference between the salary I was going to get as an engineer and the salary I was likely to get in any form of church work. I don't don't take any great pride in that particular conversation going on in my head, but it suddenly made a very concrete difference to me. What was it going to do? Did I really believe this stuff? Was it really true? And for about six months of my life as a student, whilst going on to church on a Sunday morning and going to Christian Union groups on a Thursday evening and being very involved, deep in my guts, I just had this terror. Maybe it wasn't true. And I'd had some lovely experiences of worship, but maybe they were just feelings. I've been to some great rock concerts in my life as well, and they feel good too, so maybe I was just hyped up into it. I'd had some moments in my life where there'd been some amazing answers to prayer, but maybe that was just coincidence. I love my mum and dad, but then I love my mum and dad, so maybe they were wrong too. Suddenly I had this question that I needed to deal with. Was following Jesus simply a fool's errand, something that may feel good, something that may do some good, but there's something that in the end wasn't actually true. And for about six months of my life, I delved as deep into that question as I possibly could. I asked the question, how would I know if it was? How would I be able to tell? If somebody said to me, Richard, why would I simply have to say, well, because? Because it feels good. Because it does good. Because I want it to be. 
or was it actually true? And I realized that as I delved into it, that the Christian faith, unique as far as I can tell, amongst all world religions, amongst all worldviews, actually, holds itself up for rational inquiry. It says simply this, as Paul writes in the, the letter to the Corinthian church, very, in the very early days of the Christian faith, it says simply this, if Jesus Christ is not raised from the dead, then you are to be pitied as Christians. That's a, a Christian writing that. One of the very earliest followers of Jesus wrote to his um, friends in Corinth and he said, if Jesus Christ was not raised from the dead, then we are to be pitied more than all. Now, Paul knew that because he'd given up a lot to follow Jesus. And he was saying, here's your litmus test. Here's the thing you need to get your head around. If you want to know if it's actually true, not just does it feel good, do I like being part of all souls, do I like baptisms, do I like whatever, is it true, he says, did Jesus rise from the dead? It's a moment in history. Somewhere around AD 33, possibly April the 14th, AD 33, on a hill outside Jerusalem, Jesus was crucified. The question is, two days later, did he rise from the dead? Well, for Jesus' first followers, the disciples, they wouldn't have believed it for a moment. Now, it's worth hearing, actually, because I think sometimes we assume that people who lived 2,000 years ago were stupid. Uh, there's, a sort of, uh, there's a sort of cultural snobbishness about anybody who lived before we did, that they were all gullible idiots. But the makes, John makes it very clear, and all the Gospel writers make it very clear, that the last thing that Jesus' friends, the disciples, thought was going to happen was resurrection. The last thing. Look what happens. Mary goes to the tomb, Mary Magdalene, uh, chapter 20, verse 1. She went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. And you notice what happens next. She doesn't go, yes! He's risen from the dead, told you. We've been waiting all of Holy Saturday, just waiting for that moment. Jesus is going to write. No, she doesn't. What she says is, verse 2, she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, which, by the way, in John's Gospel, we think is probably code for John, the writer of the Gospel, came to Peter and John and says, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. Grave robbers. That's what she assumed. On Good Friday... They thought it was the most terrible, worst Friday of their lives. This one whom they'd followed all their life had been wrongly arrested, terribly tortured, horribly crucified, and died. End of story. They no more thought Jesus was going to rise from the dead than you or I would. They turn up at the tomb on a Sunday morning simply to make sure that all the preparations they'd done rather hurriedly on the Friday, the ritual preparations that Jews did and do for the body, had been done. She wanted to complete them on the Sunday morning. Arrives at this tomb, which was almost certainly a sort of cave, sort of hollowed out into the rock. And this dirty great stone that was there precisely to keep grave robbers out had been moved. And she doesn't for a moment think, hey, we're okay, he's risen. She goes, it's even worse. He was dead, now he's dead and gone. The first bit, if you like, of our jigsaw, if we're going to put this jigsaw together, of why on earth would we believe the unbelievable, is simply to say that our unbelief, our sense of this is just beyond anything we could get our heads around, is that's exactly how Jesus' first friends felt. They needed evidence. And the evidence for them? Well, it was the empty tomb. It's the empty tomb. The stone rolled away, and then look what Peter and John find. Verse 3. Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple, that's John, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. 
Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. And finally, the other disciple, that's John, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. Verse 5, when it talks about, um, uh, sorry, verse 6, where it talks about Peter saw the strips of linen, John uses a really interesting word. You probably know that the Bible wasn't written in English. The English didn't exist 2,000 years ago. Most of the New Testament was written in Greek. And there's a, there's a word in Greek that they generally use for, to see, um, blepo, I see. He doesn't use that word there. He uses the word that you and I would recognise as being theory. He theorised. In other words, what John is trying to put across is that when Peter looks in, he doesn't just see it and walk off. He's, something's going on up here. He's using his rational faculties. He's looking at evidence. And what he's seeing is nobody, but still the strips of cloth. And the strips of cloth neatly laid out. Here's the cloth for the body. Here's the cloth that was wrapped around the head, left there. And you can almost hear the cogs whirring. And Peter and then John, what they're doing is they're going, hang on, hang on. If this was grave robbers, there's no way they'd have left the strips of cloth behind. Because actually, one of the reasons you robbed graves in those days was for the very spices that were in these strips of cloth. And actually, why would they unwrap them anyway? You're going to carry this naked, de- sorry, to be a decomposing body around. Why on earth would you do that? You can see the cogs, or hear or smell the cogs turning. They're theorising, what's going on? And then it says that finally they believed. They saw an empty tomb. The body was gone. The strips of cloth left behind. And they believed. Interestingly enough, if you read the writers, the non-Christian Jew, that is Jewish and Roman writers of the day, they are united in saying that Jesus existed. They're united in writing about Jesus being uh, renowned as a great teacher, that people said he did miracles, and that people claimed he rose from the dead. What not a single contemporary writer of, this, of the time denies is that there was an empty tomb. In fact, the empty tomb was such a problem that the Romans at the time had to come up with a story to explain it. They certainly didn't want it getting around that he was risen from the dead. You can imagine what that might cause. Well, actually, we don't have to imagine. We know what that caused. It was the last thing the Roman Empire wanted, so they made up a story. Uh, One of the other gospel writers says it, that they made up a story that the disciples themselves had somehow overpowered a group of Roman soldiers who were guarding the tomb, which in itself is highly unlikely, rolled the stone away, and then taken the body. They had to somehow explain the empty tomb. Actually, so do we. That first piece of evidence is for us and for the disciples, the heart of it. The body's gone. An empty tomb. And actually, as the years went by, no body is paraded in the street to disprove it. No tomb is venerated by his followers. Even the empty tomb was forgotten and left behind. His followers were so convinced that he'd actually risen from the dead. But it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough simply to find some evidence for the eyes. Because what happens next is that Mary meets the risen Jesus. Verse 10. The disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked a woman, why are you crying? 
They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this she turned round and saw Jesus standing there. But she did not realise that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. I absolutely love the fact that Jesus waited until both Mary and Peter and John had seen with their own eyes the empty tomb before he met them. Isn't that wonderful? He knew that they needed the evidence of their eyes on something very physical, something very just matter-of-fact, an empty tomb, strips of cloth that would get them partway there before he then met them himself. I love the fact that he knows we need evidence. I love the fact that when I had my six months, and actually ever since, of needing to know, is this true? Needing to put my brain into gear on my faith, that God doesn't go, well, you clearly lack faith if you've got to think about it. Actually, there's no basis on which Christians are meant to somehow check their brains in at the door of church, come and do all the sort of waving their hand stuff and having a lovely time, and then pick it up on the way out and get on with rational life. Actually, our brains as well as our hearts are meant to be engaged with faith. And there are going to be times when sometimes we know stuff but we don't feel stuff, and other stuff, times when we feel stuff and don't know stuff, but actually we're meant to be whole people engaging with our faith. So if there's an area of your faith that bothers you, then I can only encourage you to say, really dive in and explore it. God won't suddenly disappear in a puff of smoke simply because you need to get your head around it. I'm not saying you will always understand everything there is to know about God. Of course not, we're not God. But we are meant to approach these things and find out the evidence. But we also need to meet Jesus for ourselves. You're meant to meet Jesus for yourself. I'm meant to meet Jesus for myself. All of these appearances of Jesus, we heard about one last week when Jez was helping us think about Peter and Jesus talking on the beach. We're going to be thinking over the next couple of weeks about the road to Emmaus and about Jesus meeting his friends in the locked room. All of these involve Jesus eyeball to eyeball with his friends, calling them by name. And at the heart of the Christian faith isn't simply a rational belief in an almost unbelievable event 2,000 years ago. It's the belief that because Jesus is alive, we get to be friends of his today. That he knows you by name. That he calls you by name. And if that is something you've never known, if that eyeball to eyeball being called by name is something that's never been part of your experience, then make sure it does become part of your experience. Make sure it's something you're willing to step into. It simply involves saying yes to the risen Jesus. I think I believe. I want to believe. Mary, when Jesus met her, was still weeping. She was still maybe only on the edges of faith, and Jesus called her by name. He needs to call each of us by name. Here's the problem, though. It still sounds pretty unbelievable, doesn't it? If we're really honest, dead people don't rise. They just don't. Maybe they made it up. Let's just play with that for a little bit. Maybe Jesus' friends, the first disciples, made it up. Well, there's so many different angles to take it on this one. We'll take them in slightly random order. For a start, putting together a story like this 
with all its detail. I mean, the detail like who arrived at the tomb first and who saw what and the way these four different stories across Matthew, Mark, Luke and John interweave with one another took quite some doing if it was made up. And yet almost none of Jesus' disciples were even educated to read and write, let alone writers in their own right. They were mostly fishermen or traders. They had one tax collector amongst them who could read and write, and that was it. But more than that, if you were going to make it up, there is no way on this planet you would have made this story up, surely. I mean, for a start, if you were going to make up a story about somebody rising from the dead, you wouldn't have it that he was mistaken for the gardener. I mean, on any possible level, that's nuts. Surely what you'd do, certainly what I'd do, is have him come back in a sort of Superman moment, wouldn't you? I mean, if he's risen from the dead, we'll do it properly, you know. I I know they weren't imagining Hollywood blockbusters, but you'd at least have a bit of a sort of glow about him, wouldn't you? You, You'd have sort of, he'd be powerful and magnificent and everyone would be falling at their feet and, and they'd be going, oh, Jesus, you're risen from the dead. You wouldn't make up him being mistaken from the gardener, surely. And you certainly wouldn't have Peter and John, who by the time this was circulated with the leaders of the church, you wouldn't have them being second and third in line to meet Jesus. You'd have them first. And you wouldn't have them standing in the tomb, scratching their heads, looking like idiots. You wouldn't have them missing out on the angels and it being Mary that sees the angels. No, I mean, none of that makes sense if you're making this up. But here's the thing that really makes no sense at all. It being Mary that meets Jesus first. Now, for a start, Mary has a very checkered history in the Gospels. She was known in those days as a demoniac, somebody who was wild, somebody who was just lived in the outdoors, somebody who people were afraid of before she met Jesus. But actually, even if she were the most upright together woman on the planet 2,000 years ago, she still wouldn't have been the person you'd have meeting Jesus first. Why? Well, because 2,000 years ago, can I just emphasize that again? 2,000 years ago, the culture of the day, the culture of the day was that women would be taken out of the equation entirely when it came to being taken seriously. In fact, in a court of law, women were not called as witnesses 2,000 years ago because they were counted as being completely um, unreliable. It was just a byword. It wasn't even just the sort of casual misogyny that we see around maybe today. It was deliberate written into law. Misogyny, it simply said, well, you can't trust women. So if you were going to have your first witness of the resurrection, who would it be? Not Mary. It would be bonkers. In fact, about 150 years later, one of the earliest um, atheist apologists, one of the first writers against the Christian religion, used this exact fact that Mary was accounted as the first person to meet the risen Jesus. As proof positive, it couldn't possibly be true. Because you wouldn't believe a woman, would you? I'm not sure a massive amount has changed over the years, but that's a thing for another day. The fact is that if you were making it up, you wouldn't have made Mary the first person to meet. But they couldn't change it. Why? Well, because everybody knew that she was the first person to meet Jesus. They had to write that down because that was what happened. They couldn't change it to suit what would be more comfortable because this is what they'd experienced. On so many different levels, it makes less sense to believe they made this up than to believe that it's actually true. Here's a final thing. Most of Jesus' first disciples died for this belief. Almost every one of them was martyred for their faith. They weren't martyred for an idea or an ideal or a political cause. They were martyred for belief in the resurrection. 
And yet we're expected to believe that not only did they have, if you like, the wherewithal to make up a story, not only were they idiots enough to make up a story that reads this oddly, but they were stupid enough to die for something they knew wasn't true. These disciples were transformed people. They went from being bottom of the heap to being out on the streets telling people this good news because they knew they had a job to do. It's what Jesus says to Mary. You've seen with your eyes, you've heard with your ears, you've met me. Now, says Jesus at the end of our passage, go and tell your friends that I'm alive. As we've baptised Theo, we've baptised him in to faith. And the language of being baptised into faith is to be on a journey, not on a conveyor belt. We're not saying to Theo or to his parents or to any of us here, simply sit on the conveyor belt, hum a merry tune, check your brain in at the door every Sunday, and hopefully you'll wander off the end of the conveyor belt at the end of life and you'll be okay with God. What we're saying to Theo and to all of us is, we believe this is true. Jesus really was who he came to, said he came to be. Jesus really did die on the cross so that we could be friends of God. Jesus really did rise from the dead. But you need to know it's true too. So as Theo grows up, we'll be encouraging Theo to apply his head as well as his heart to faith, to decide for himself whether it's true, to hear for himself the word Theo said to him by Jesus, his friend. And then, like Mary, to tell others the good news that Jesus is alive. We're going to sing. They're songs that help us to respond to God. If you're somebody that's already a follower of Jesus, if you're somebody, if you like, that, that says, yeah, no, I know this is true, then by all means, uh, respond using these songs with all your heart. If you're somebody, if you like, who feels that you're looking in from the outside uh, or looking in from the edges of faith, then I think I'd want to encourage you simply to not get stuck there looking in but to apply all of your head and rational faculties, to apply all of your heart and your sense of engagement with God, and to discover for yourself that it is true that Jesus is alive and wants to be our friend today.